This is Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. No spin, no theories, no rumors, just facts. Here's Lisa O'Brien. Tonight, I'm joined by Shelly Levesay and Amy Kingry. Shelly is a criminal defense attorney and owner of Levesay and Associates, an author and podcaster from Shawnee, Oklahoma. She went to the University of Oklahoma College of Law, was Order of Barristers, and a note editor for the Indian, American Indian Law Review. In May 2022, she will graduate with an LLM in Indigenous Peoples. Amy has been a paralegal in Oklahoma City for 21 years. She was born and raised in Edmond, Oklahoma, and began helping victims of violent crime as a friend of a Howell family member, and because of the misinformation in the media campaign designed to free Julius Jones. Amy is a co-founder of Oklahoma Victims Innocence Project, a community organization dedicated to supporting victims, survivors of violent crime as they navigate the post-conviction litigation process. Amy's hope is to let victims of violent crimes know that they still have a voice to speak the truth, no matter how much those voices shake. She's also a CrossFit enthousi- enthusiast and with her significant other, a fan of the Oklahoma Sooners and OKC Thunder. Finally, as a proud mom of five children and bonus mom to three stepchildren, there is never a dull moment in Amy's life. Shelly and Amy have joined me to talk about State of Oklahoma versus Julius Darius Jones. On the evening of July 28, 1999, Jones, armed with a 25 caliber pistol, carjacked and shot Paul Howe in the driveway of his parents' Edmond, Oklahoma home. His sister and daughters were luckiest to escape the carjacking unharmed. In spite of the overwhelming evidence presented at trial establishing Jones's guilt, and post-conviction DNA testing that identified Julius Jones as a person wearing the red bandana described by several witnesses, the Viola Davis produced Last Defense in 2018 fueled a media campaign of misinformation that characterized Jones's guilt as in doubt. In spite of Jones's extensive prison disciplinary record, the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board broke its own rules, holding two hearings and recommending commutation and clemency for Jones. Uh, 
On November 18, 2021, instead of facing execution, Governor Kevin Stitt commuted Jones' sentence to life without the possibility of parole. All right, Amy and Shelly, I just asked you to unmute Shelly. Ah, great, you're here. Good afternoon, good evening. This will be aired in the evening. How are y'all doing this fine Sunday? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Very well. I'm doing well as well. Thank you very much for asking. Good. And uh, I know I had a, a somewhat lengthy, um, lengthy intro there, but is there anything, ladies, that you would like to add to introduce yourselves to the audience? Shelly? I mean, I think you about covered it. Um, even though I'm a criminal defense lawyer, I started my career as a prosecutor and I have been a victim of violent crime myself. So I consider myself a victim's advocate as well. Yes. And I, I did read about um, your experience, uh, but that is for another, another day. Uh, Amy, is there anything I missed with you? I don't think so. Uh, you know, <clears throat> our um, project is a baby and in the early stages and, you know, um, so far we're just trying to do a little bit at a time, but yeah, I think you covered it because this is really my first big jump into something like this. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll just get started. Um, first of all, we have uh, the Howe family. They are in my mind, the only victims in this case, uh, of course, Paul lost his life and his sister and daughters witnessed this crime. So uh, they're victims as well. Um, Amy, you're a friend of the family. How have they been doing since the commutation? Um, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've talked a couple of times and... <sighs> Man, that's a loaded question um, as to not speak in place of them. Um, you know, they have a lot going on in their lives outside of Julius Jones, um, as I think we all do. And, you know, for them, I think it's just trying to adapt to what has transpired, because I don't think it's anything that anyone can just adapt right. to overnight. You know, and you I were promised something for a while and then it's just shifted. So I think they're, they're in adaption mode. Correct. And I, I think they do rightly feel that it's a denial of justice for them and for Paul uh, because Jones was not deserving of commutation. No, not at all. So um, I, I, I totally agree with that, but I, I don't think they, when you and I spoke I don't think they, they necessarily wanted an execution, but they wanted justice. I can agree with that. I mean, and, I don't, <clears throat> sorry, go ahead. No, that, and that's, I, I think that that was more the ultimate justice for Jones would have been losing his life. Yeah. You know, I think that the, the part about that is you're right. Um, so many of these people on the other side don't know the Howell family. Um, they don't know the people that they are. And, and it wasn't about them seeing someone die. It was about them getting justice. And my personal opinion is I don't think this was justice because yeah. I don't think it's a closed, closed deal, you know? 
And Shelly, um, you've spoken on that before. It, it's the the executive order basically says he can't apply again for commutation or clemency parole. He's without parole. Uh, is that set in stone or could that change with another governor or another pardon and parole board? I think that that is still up for debate. I mean, the executive order is pretty clear on its face. However, I'm not sure that one governor can bind another governor. Uh, the problem is our constitution uh, says that you cannot go from death uh, to life without. So in that sense, he's gotten all he can get under um, the statutes and under the Oklahoma constitution. However, I just am afraid that a go another governor might try to undo it, but I under the Constitution, there should be nothing else he should be able to do. Yeah. And of course, though, a legal principle, another governor can't undo it by putting him back on death row. That is forever off the table. Uh, we, I have never heard of that. Someone mentioned that and I said, well, that would be very interesting. Um, we have not been able to find any way that that yeah. would happen. Um, although it would be good in this case, at least it would make it go away, but no, I don't think that's an option. Yeah. I think it could only go down. And I think the constitution prevents that. I, I think it's generally a principle of equity in any, any state law that if you, for example, if your sentence is reduced by an appellate court from death to life, and then you have to be retried, they can't seek death again. And generally it's just an equity. It's on the theory of equity. It's not fair that his death sentence was thrown out and then he faces it again. So, but that would be, it, it would be an interesting thing to look uh, or to try. Yeah, it would be, I think it'd be an interesting legal argument to make, particularly in front of our court of criminal appeals, if uh, that were to try, I think it would definitely make new law, but we'll see what happens. Now, Amy, is there a possibility because of the irregularities with the pardon and parole's handling? Um, you know, that's exactly what I was getting ready to touch on. Uh, I know that um, anybody that has paid attention to the recent acts of um, Adam Luck and the pardon and parole board and him being removed, um, there was, <laughs> now let's take this for face value um, on mainstream media, uh, where they stated that this would not affect any of the cases that he has voted on. Mm -hmm. Now that's fine unless there's a criminal investigation and, and a uh, grand jury investigation into the pardon and parole board and Adam Luck, which in my personal opinion and a little bit of knowledge opinion, know that that has everything to do with what transpired last week with Adam Luck being removed. Um, so, and Shelly can maybe piggyback off this, if it's found that crimes were committed um, by the Pardon and Parole Board or Adam Luck himself, I personally don't, especially in this case, I don't see how anything is impossible. <laughs> so um, I would not put to bed completely these things that he voted on being reversed, such as a big one, or not even reversed, but reheard. Um, now, yes, I understand that as a long shot, um, but it's been done in other things. So, 
Okay. I, I think it wouldn't be automatically reversed. What I would think would happen would they would send these cases back to be reheard in front of an impartial board. Correct. Uh, rather than particularly if one of the members that voted for it was a part of a criminal conspiracy, say, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think you could just let that stand. I would think that you would be able to request and get a new hearing in front of new people on the panel. Correct. Right. But then would Governor Stitt reverse or rescind his orders where he granted their recommended their recommended? Well, I mean, he did well, ask uh, Adam Duck to uh, resign from the pardon and parole board. So there is something at least that's <sighs> concerning him. Obviously, I can't speak for Governor Stitt. Yeah. But there's at least something that's come to his knowledge that he's concerned about. I, but I think Governor Stitt has some push me, pull you problems because <laughs> he seemed, you know, he's that asked what we're calling it. <laughs> that, that's, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> um, he, he, you know, asked Adam Luck to resign after this investigation concludes but not before when the allegations of, of lack of, of impartiality are being made. Yeah. Those allegations were go back two years and uh, yeah. two years when flags were first starting to be raised. And right. So if you read between the lines, something came out in that investigation, which I know to be true was concluded in December. Mm-hmm. So, so there's something in there. If you know that, and that's the thing, if you have a doubt about the propriety of the pardon and parole board, then why would you take their recommended action? It's a great question. And I don't think anyone has an answer for that. So but technically, I guess he took the recommendation for Jones in November. Uh, so I guess technically before that concluded in December, but you would think that you would put things on hold if you're investigating the members that are making these major decisions. Correct. Well, there wasn't enough noise either, I don't think. I think, um, in my personal opinion, I think that, you know, quite frankly, Stitt just didn't really care. Yeah. He didn't really care about the stuff that was going on with the Pardon and Parole Board. Um, He and Oklahoma District Attorney David Prater had gotten into it on a personal level. And so I think that that had something to do with it with him saying, no, I picked these people, you know, Stitt's got a big ego. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that to admit he was wrong or put someone on that board that was not, you know, the best fit was a little bit of, of a pill for him to swallow. And I think it took enough, possibly enough noise about it. And not just in the Jones case, but in other cases. Um, and then I think coupled with that investigation coming back, I think probably was the tipper. Right. All right. Well, um, let's move on and talk about the reason that we all disagree with Governor Stitt's recommendation for Julius Jones. Um, And uh, Shelly, you covered this in your podcast, Lawyers, Guns and Money, Real Crime, uh, Real trials, real lawyers. Have I got the name right? Pretty close. Real crimes. And I should have mentioned that one. (laughs) And and I keep thinking that made the name of my podcast too long. But, but yes, I mean, 
first off, one of the first things you usually see if you're going to be granted mercy, which is what a commutation or a pardon is, it's it's a grant of mercy, is typically you see remorse and that you've done some things to deserve mercy or deserve a change. And there was none of that in the commutation hearing. It's still proclaiming innocence. So right. that is a concern. And that I think raises a, a big red flag. And then the fact that they continue to spout lies at the commutation hearing that had already been proven were not true. Um, that you state myths, truths to the tribunal over and over when he gives his statement, he still wants to argue and say that didn't happen. I mean, that's just not a person that's deserving of a commutation coupled with the fact that he's in a gang in prison, that he's making money off of his crimes and that he's, you know, at least there's allegations that he's calling shots from inside. I mean, that's just a ridiculous person to grant a pardon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or commutation, right. excuse me. Correct. You know, there's um, a lot of um, guidelines per se, rules um, of what a person should be. Um, obviously, a significant change from the person they were when they were convicted of the, pri- the crime. But I think the problem in lies here is, like Shelly said, when they get to that hearing, and they still, there's no remorse. There's still no acceptance. He still wants to say he's innocent. So therefore, mm-hmm. I don't think they felt like they had to show he was a different person because he didn't think he did the crime. Right. That, that's the narrative they were staying on. And this is another thing, and not even on my outline, but I cannot wrap my head around his family. He came from what appears to be a good law-abiding family father worked in construction mother was a teacher they worked hard for everything they had and to provide for their children and then he goes off to college and decides he wants to be a gangster or a thug and now they're just backing him up and letting him get away with it that doesn't make any sense to me um have have you seen <clears throat> Shelly do you by chance have the article in front of you that was released late but it was done right after he was arrested uh, I brought my file here I don't know if I have that yeah wherein it talks about oh, that, yes Lisa um it talks about their very first interview they gave after this um back in 99 mm-hmm. um it completely contradicts what they're saying today so why are they, you say? Um, I think as parents, they felt like that's what they had to do. To protect him. To protect him because that's their child. And I, you know, I'm going to go out here on a limb right now and say that as a mother, do I fault the parents for wanting to keep their kid alive? Absolutely not. Do I fault them for the way that they did it and the, um, the lies and deceit that they helped spread? They're not only this case, but a setting a precedence for other cases hundred percent I do right because they should have there should have been a come to Jesus before 1999 with old Julius <laughs> right <laughs> he's already committing several crimes and they just kind of ignore that yeah <laughs> and he's showing up with these new cars and uh he's showing up with clothes and money that they know they're not providing to him 
why are they not saying, what are you doing and stop doing it? Because they seem like the type of people who have lived a law abiding life. They're not, you know, gangsters trying Mm -hmm. to get away with something. They're, you know, hardworking people. Why are they letting him steal? Well, I think we also have to remember that let's look at what Julius Jones has said since the time he was got arrested or arrested in his actions. He's not truthful to anyone. Why do we think that he would be truthful to his own parents? And and this is not a a sticking up for him or vouching for his family. It is a, they probably were lied to just as much as we were. So if they say, hey, Julius, where'd you get those? Oh, his girlfriend, whatever, bought him for him. Okay. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think there was a lot of, listen, Julius Jones is a, um, He's really good at pulling the wool. Yeah, thank you. Yes, And we all know that they have the ability to pull the wool over people's eyes and make them believe whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And I believe 100% he did that with his own family. Yeah. Well, the thing that bothers me about the family, not only are they lying about the alibi, but they lie about things that are easily provable, like saying he was an athlete at OU (laughs) and that he was, you know, uh, you know, a scholar athlete making good grades when clearly he was failing. I mean, that's the part I don't understand. I mean, I can, I don't have kids. Uh, I mean, I have people that I love. I imagine wanting to help them, but I can't imagine. I mean, why are you going to lie about stupid things? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes no sense. So, I mean, that part disturbs me, Um, you know, because you could say maybe they were mistaken, but when we, in preparing for my podcast, went back and read that 311 hearing and uh, Brenda Cujo testified, they were mad at her for saying it wasn't that day. So they Mm -hmm. knew it wasn't that day and they still stuck with it. And so that's the part that bothers me. And I mean, I can't imagine facing your son being executed, but still, I just don't think you would go to that extreme. I know my mom wouldn't. Yeah. Right. My, my mother, had I been like Julius Jones, um, when I got arrested, my mother would have visited me in prison, but I would have been entering a guilty plea and it would have been top count most time in prison. Cause maybe that would straighten my ass out. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That was my mother. And that was her parents. You know, that was their mindset. They'll protect you to a degree. But when you screw up, you play the piper. Right. Mm-hmm. You plead guilty, you apologize, and then you do what you need to do to make it right. Mm-hmm. And you well, know, like I, I said, think- it would not be get a good lawyer and, and get it knocked down to a slap on the wrist. Oh, no, 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 no. No. And I think that, um, not think, I know that they were influenced by the masses here in Oklahoma City. Um, it's no secret that uh, the project per se that came in um, had things that they needed to follow in order to make this thing work. And so I think the deeper they got into it, they just they just went with it, you know, because they were being told probably what a lot of other people were, you know. Um, I think that it's unfortunate, <clears throat> you know, that he started this behavior at an early age. And unfortunately, we don't know what went on. You know, we, we don't know. But I know as a mother, one thing I always tell my kids is um, regardless of how bad you think the consequence is going to be, you always need to tell the truth, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I don't have children um, who have ever committed a crime or been arrested, you know, to this date. And I have 
uh, my oldest is 23, you know, so I can't, I can't imagine, but I can't imagine what my response would be to that. So like Shelly said, like, I don't understand the things that they know are lies that you're going along with. That part mm-hmm. is baffling. That can be proven. And they'll, they'll still turn around and say, no, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Just like mm-hmm. he said at the, at the hearing about when they pointed out at the parole hearing or the clemency hearing or whatever it was, uh, the one that put Julius's feet to the fire smotherman, I think his name is. Um, he said, the jury's never present when you do that. And, and it's not only a law in Oklahoma, it's the law in Florida. It's the law in California. <laughs> it's the law in Louisiana. It's the law in New York. When a defendant goes on the record and says, he's not going to testify. And he affirms that it's his decision alone and that he's not been threatened or coerced into making it, that is always outside the presence of the jury. And it's outside the presence of the jury in a federal case. Mm -hmm. So Oklahoma is not unique in that that respect. And part of it is because you don't want jurors hearing that the defendant is not going to testify and, you know, that he decided not to testify. No, right. There's jury instructions. You can't tell them. You just have to say they have a right not to. I mean, it's just lunacy. And I don't Mm -hmm. even understand why his attorneys would let him proceed with that and then say, oh, well, I don't know. The judge didn't listen. And I mean, yeah, it's just nonsense. And and finally, you know, contradicting and, and explaining it away. And then finally, that's just not true. Uh, and then I, I, the other thing that's uh, maddening is all of Julius Jones's crimes, the ones he's not been convicted of, they never happened because he <laughs> <Right>. wasn't convicted. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're not it's... even at we're 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 beyond that. But uh, this I was rewatching the, the hearing today where Amanda Bass is saying you know, he was never convicted of this. They didn't file charges on this. Because he got the death penalty. Like, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Why Amanda. waste taxpayer dollars? It's stupid. Hey. <laughs> but shall yeah. we provide you with where he did plead guilty to that? fact? And crime? he claims he only did that because he just got a new attorney that day. And it, the judge wasn't going to give them a continuance and he was going to go to yeah. trial. He needed that for his. Well, the, the other excuse I heard was he needed that for his appeal. No, you mm-hmm. don't. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you wanted to keep your appeals a lie, you would have said, fine, let's go to trial. I mean, it's just... right. Exactly. It's, none of it adds up. And that's the whole thing about this is you just mentioned Amanda Bass. She, her and several others along that thing. Anytime I know Shelly can say this too. Anytime we presented that side with actual hardcore facts, they would either change the subject or block us down. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, they don't want to talk truth. They don't want to talk facts. They don't want to talk transcript. And I found, and I've been doing this for many years. I started on old internet discussion boards on uh, the World Wide Web, um, and I have found that for the most part, the side of the prosecution, for the most part, makes sense. It doesn't change. It's pretty much linear. And the, their innocent campaign is generally things that don't make sense, harping on issues that aren't even relevant. 
uh, harping on issues as though they've been proven when they've never been presented in court. They're just arguments that lay people are making on the internet. Um, and then they keep harping on Chris Jordan confessing, confessing. He can confess to a thousand people. It doesn't change the fact that the case as it stands and the evidence at trial was that the person holding the gun was Julius Jones. Well, and the other thing, the so-called people they bring up that he confessed to, you know, he didn't confess to any priest or any (laughs) preachers. It was a guy that strangled cats and shot himself to get workers comp. I mean, that guy was crazy as can Mm -hmm. be. Another one was another guy who was uh, being put on trial uh, for another murder and had committed all sorts of things and was in and out of a mental hospital. I mean, they had no credibility. Right. I mean, if you have no better credibility than that, then don't bring those people forward. Right. I mean, well, that'd be a decision I'd think about. No, I'm not putting those people on the stand or I'm not having them sign an affidavit. You're going to be laughed out of court. Yeah. And again, it's the, it's the, um, the do as I say, not as I do. Mm-hmm. If the, Inmate says your client is guilty. They're lying. They're through their teeth. <laughs> but if they say your client is innocent, they have no bones to pick. They have no reason to lie. And they're absolutely 100% telling the truth. God is my witness. And that's, you know, that's another thing with post conviction litigation that is so amusing is that in post conviction late litigation, as long as they say you're innocent, prisoner witnesses are the gold standard well speaking of confessions you know what confession was made the confession by julius jones that he was in fact not at home the night of the murder Mm -hmm. but they don't want to talk about that one right and they don't want to talk about all these other confessions or that he told someone he saw a little girl uh waving at him which has to be rochelle hell and you would only know that if you were the shooter You couldn't have known that from a car. And he told King and Jordan, I believe, that the gun went off by accident. He didn't mean to shoot Paul Howell. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Which, I mean, if we want to look at it, that I could buy. That I could buy because mm -hmm. I could buy. He goes up. He was just going to do like he did the other carjackings. And he was just going to rob him of the car. Well, then the girl spooks him. You know, he's just all thrown off. Mm-hmm. you know and so yeah yeah uh, yeah maybe i could go with that but there were two shots um so did you accidentally shoot twice i mean i know the other was just in the car but um mm-hmm. but megan toby describes it as him shouting at them to stop and firing a shot correct and so i believe that- she's mentioned i i didn't find it in my research but She's mentioned that he told someone somewhere down the line, I wish I'd shot them all and killed them so nobody could have identified me. I want to say I believe that was Annalise Presty. Am I wrong? I No, I think that's what I was trying to say. I think it was to the girlfriend. I can't remember anybody else that he would have said that to. But again, the girlfriend's testimony, and that's something we went over a lot, um, in in my podcast was 
that she had no reason to testify against him. She wasn't in trouble. She loved him, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but her testimony was really damaging to him and they don't talk about her at all. Um, They just kind of forget that she was a part of this. It's another thing that makes no sense. Amanda Bass mentioned a video of Annalise Presley saying the, the DA threatened her and she didn't get a chance when she was answering the questions to explain her answers and it's uh-huh. like, sweetie, that's court. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but they're not trial lawyers. I think that's one of the things that frustrates me about Amanda Bass and a lot of the post-conviction people. They're not trial lawyers that actually try cases and see mm-hmm. how these things work. And, you know, I did a trial recently and they're, the state's main witness felt, I mean, fell apart on the stand. I mean, didn't get through their story. Mm-hmm. And I had believed all along they were lying. But I mean, some of those things come out in a courtroom when somebody's lying, like you can tell. Um, and people seem to forget that. That's why trial judges and juries are so respected, their decisions, because they actually heard the people talk. They saw their mannerisms. They saw their body language and could make determinations that you can't necessarily get just from reading the cold transcript. But again, I don't think Amanda Bass tries cases. She does a, does appellate work and picks things apart right and she thinks of a a witness as well the da's were mean to me and and when they asked me a question they made me say yes or no and i wasn't able to explain and um that that's but she doesn't act as i recall from amanda bass's description she doesn't disavow or retract any of her testimony no she doesn't she She just just claims annalise said it was out of context or that she wasn't able to provide context that she wanted to provide i could not find said video by the way so oh, i haven't seen it either so yeah well whatever what, context she would have approved would probably have been twisted and turned by uh amanda bass and right. dale bates anyhow so i i think that sometimes these witnesses and i i know we saw this with the uh facebook message to the juror on the racial epithet um these investigators tell people we have evidence that proves that he's innocent and we need your help Mm -hmm. and more likely than not that's what happened with annalise presley is that they said we we could prove he's innocent but we need your help and so she did the video saying the da's were mean and she didn't want to testify and um, they didn't let her explain her answers the way she wanted to explain them. So, uh, and that letter, it's, it's hilarious. That letter in Julius Jones's handwriting, I found it in five or six places, but somehow Amanda Bass hasn't seen it yet. No, <laughs> <laughs> Right. They had never yeah. seen it. Never seen it. Because I don't think she read all of the stuff. I think they picked and chose what they wanted to talk about and made a documentary, but they didn't actually go through and read all of it. Well, that's a big, well, that mis- wasn't good for them. That's a big, Correct. I mean, that didn't help their client look very well yeah. if they did that letter. Yeah. Well, exactly. Well, before, before an unbiased parole board, it would have bitten them in the ass, but they knew they had the lock. So it didn't matter. But if they pursue additional or attempt to pursue additional post-conviction claims, 
for Julius Jones uh, because that's the only other way he's going to get out. Yeah, but Shelly, what would that pursue. even? Well, first of all, I think once you get in an actual back in an actual courtroom, even if you filed a post conviction, I mean, based on new evidence, I don't think any trial courts or appellate courts are going to entertain this. They just kind of had it in the bag on the pardon and parole board. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way they went. They would not have this kind of success. I don't think in any trial court or appellate court as they haven't before, nor do I think they would have had, they had a different set of members on the pardon and parole board. Mm-hmm. No, because- uh, no, I think if, I'm sorry, I was going to say, I think if they had the same members that were on there when this whole fiasco started, um there's no way that we would be sitting here talking about this today no way right first of all because he wasn't even eligible for the commutation hearing to begin (laughs) with because he had uh, misconduct in prison i mean rule number one he doesn't even get the hearing but we ignored that was a rule until adam luck changed the rule well right yeah 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 yeah. no and (laughs) and all of the issues that worked for this pardon and parole board were ones that the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals and the U.S. District Court in the Western District of Oklahoma, as well as the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, had roundly rejected. And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to review four times. Yeah, it's it's just crazy. So, but there is, you know, there's a chance that they'll come up with another. They right before the parole hearing in March of uh, 2021, they did have another inmate who said Christopher Jordan confessed to him. But once again, it's a a confession that doesn't help Julius Jones, although they don't seem to realize that uh, because Jordan allegedly said my partner is on death row behind a murder I committed, which means Julius Jones under felony felony murder rule would have been eligible for death even if he didn't pull the trigger yep mm-hmm. and and let's look at this real quick so he comes forward with a confession so mm-hmm. this is post last offense this is in the middle of innocence fraud mm-hmm. and think of the other cases that they have done the innocence project wherein it's now been proven that they promised them things just to get this confession so I'll take that and toss it about as far as I can, maybe down to my feet. And I would love to get some documentation of those promises from the Innocence Project, because in the Rodney Reed case, they had some inmate confessions. Um, This case, they're there and they'll probably come up with more. Uh, Because the Innocence Project is not about quality. It's about quantity. If they can get 20 experts they'll get 20 experts, even if none of the experts says the same thing. And they'll now, say that's sad, better evidence. Than, it's a very sad state of affairs that we're in with this stuff. I mean, it makes me not even want to look at any, uh, you know, I always watch true crime stuff and then you turn on, you click on true crime and then you start seeing these documentaries of these wrongfully convicted people and then when you actually go research it, it's like they weren't wrongfully convicted. What right? What are you doing? But they're all making these movies now and they go on Netflix. And so now everyone's convinced these people are innocent. Right. And that's what we have to combat. 
And that's one of the things that I try to do. And then we all love Roberta Glass. Roberta Glass mm-hmm. does uh, a few other uh, a few other podcasters out there that don't tow that party line, but try to offer the other side of the story. And your well, podcast. Well, somebody's got to do is... it because. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's like fighting a losing battle. Uh, but yeah. yes, someone's got to do it. We have to keep, <laughs> keep on with it um, because people, you know, find it exciting. And I mean, you know, I've been a defense lawyer now for seven, eight years. Um, and I've had a few clients that I thought were innocent. I would say that's very, very not the average case. So um, anytime someone starts, everyone that they talk to is innocent that's in prison. I just really am skeptical. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, well, I, I think we've kind of, I, I don't know that whether we want to go back over the, the background as much. I know that I, kind of envision that but i don't know that we necessarily need to do that Um, you mean the background of the case the background of the case and and okay 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 it's if you all saw the case notes and i didn't even include jordan king and lottie in the evidence of jordan of jones's guilt Mm -hmm. and there's plenty without them (laughs) absolutely mm-hmm. there is there always has mm-hmm. been that's it's just so ridiculous yeah they're like there's just nothing well okay that's not true uh but okay <laughs> right and well they they pick and ch- they cherry pick and and that was another thing right. I, when amanda bass was talking about cherry picking and taking things out of context i'm like bitch please <laughs> Yeah, you're the poster child. Oh, for it. I mean, that is. I was sitting right in that room, and that's what plan. I wanted to yell. You know? <laughs> that is your whole game plan, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but I also thought well, uh, Paul Howe's family, his niece, daughter, Megan, and his brother Brian, I believe, mm-hmm. all did a fantastic job, and the members that voted for clemency have hearts of stone Um, because you could tell it wasn't about anger or hatred it was about justice for them right and i think it would have been a different outcome had people sat down and said look he was 19 he doesn't deserve to die Let's come to an agreement on life without parole. It might have been a very different situation. This could have gone different way, but they weren't going to go with that. They wanted him out and say he was innocent. Right. And he is so unrepentant. Mm -hmm. That is the, you know, that is the, what makes it more galling is that he is unrepentant about that if if he was so innocent and he didn't do it and i know we don't want to rehash the case a whole lot but you know one of the things that has stuck with me is that letter that he wrote to megan howell Mm -hmm. from from prison um one line to her 
that there was already evidence showing it wasn't him, which is a lie. Correct. And mm-hmm. two, trying to get her to change her testimony. Correct. So when she wouldn't do it, Innocence Fraud just did it for him. Mm-hmm. Um, wherein you get the uh, reinvention of the truth about Megan Howell's testimony. So, you know, that's one of the biggest things that sticks with me outside of being attached to this case, um, outside of doing what I'm doing now, is when you just look at the facts that that partner parole board didn't want to look at. And I don't, I don't see, I don't see how you can do that. I don't see how you can ignore that. Mm-hmm. And when he doesn't have any remorse, he doesn't have, you know, and I think what Shelly said is correct. I think had he taken any sort of responsibility, even if he wanted to not come all the way clean and say, yes, I did this, you know, this is what I did do. I knew this was going to go down, you know, mm-hmm. uh, right. any little bit of it. I know a hundred percent they would have, it, it would have been a different situation right now. Right. What, what is frustrating is that they just resubjected and re-victimized the mm-hmm. house by continuing this on over and over. And then they're still like after Christmas, when he went to general pop, there was some stupid story about him being upset that, you know, he didn't get a visit or something. It's like, stop giving him airtime. Mm-hmm. Like, stop it. Right. You know, it's ridiculous. Stop um, giving this murderer all this time. It, it's ridiculous. Right. And that's what is so frustrating is because the victims were completely just disregarded. And, you know, we talk about what you just said, um, Lisa, as far as, you know, being in that, that hearing and the ones that voted for clemency had a heart of stone, their faces were stone. (laughs) I don't know if you watched the whole entire thing where um, Paul's brother tried to hand them a list of questions. Yes. Which this is the first time that the man who killed their family member was going to speak. And yeah, they had questions. And the way that he looked at them and disregarded them was like the way somebody gets onto their, mm-hmm. you know, cap that keeps coming on the front door that shouldn't be at their property. Yeah. You know, it was just like that part for me is what stuck me in the gut. And that was a part for me where I thought they didn't ask for this. They mm-hmm. did not ask for this. And you are treating them like they are just causing this huge deal. Meanwhile, people that aren't victims and aren't the victim's family are allowed to walk into that pardon and parole board. I was there. I was the second person in line for that hearing. And do you know who got special treatment and wheeled in and made sure they were all comfortable first? The Jones family. Bingo. Mm-hmm. It was all making sure that they were <laughs> comfy and brought in first. And when we Mm -hmm. talk about the victims, talk about the harassment and the intimidation, the entire right side of that room had justice for Julius shirts on. Mm -hmm. That's not okay either. There's more rules that were broken there for the victims. And it appears after uh, the Howells spoke, um, there was a redistribution while the attorneys came back for their final uh, statement. And it appears that somebody in Julius Jones campaign went and sat right next to Brian Howe. And God bless that man for sitting there and no facial expression, no expression of 
anything when that person was nodding and almost saying amen for Amanda Bass when she was talking. It was one of the most obnoxious things I've ever seen. I, I don't recall who that was. I do recall Julius's father being very close proximity to that. Mm-hmm. Um, who was also the one that got reprimanded, which I'm still shocked by that. Um, you know, when Adam Luck was, was talking at the end of what their decision was. Um, so I'm not sure if that's the same person that you're talking about or not. I'll have to go back and watch. But... It was a female heavy. Oh, it was a female. Okay. Okay. Um, well, female heavy set, very dark, uh, complexion. I believe I would have to go back and look, but you know, it, it, it didn't stop there though for the victims. I mean, yeah. and it didn't stop there. You know, I think Shelly might be able to agree with me on this one that that, that Jones campaign had a lot of entitlement. They mm-hmm. still have a lot of entitlement. Um, let's take for instance, their hoopla. And we all saw it, uh, especially on Twitter about them being appalled that the governor wouldn't sit down and talk to mama Jones. Mm -hmm. Um, Why? You're not a party in this case. You're not a victim. Why do you think that she should be able to talk to the governor? Right. It's baffling. And the, the crowd in the, in the hallways Mm -hmm. carrying on it, it, in a place of business of government. So, and you see, I've seen it in other cases like the Rodney Reed case where they're, they're acting out in court like that. Mm-hmm. Like they're entitled to, if you don't agree with the judge, you can shout him down. And that too is appalling to me. Mm-hmm. So, but that's the society we're becoming. They're trying. Yeah. (laughs) So, and it's a lot, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of 20 somethings have that idea. Like, you know, if you get a job out of college and you don't show up until 1030 in the morning every day, even though you're supposed to be there at 830, how dare they fire you? Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, but well, I think I, I think we kind of covered it. Last defense is awful. <laughs> um, not even worth watching. Although that is where this late witness in May of twenty twenty one came up. He he was watching Last Defense and recognized Chris Jordan. So he says. So he says, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 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 confession, I think, was in 2009, sometime in t- 2009 or 2010, uh, when Jordan and he were working at a commissary in prison in Arkansas. Because apparently Jordan did his time outside of Oklahoma. I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't have his, let me see if I can find his stuff while you guys are talking, but I think I might be able to. 
Oh, and his sentence being uh, shortened, that had nothing to do with Julius Jones. It happened as an operation of state law. And which how they, they explained in the clemency hearing. Yeah, which is not good enough for anybody. <laughs> right. So, and but apparently because he allegedly told Christopher Barry he was only going to do 15 years. But wasn't that the deal anyway? It's 30. It was 30, but part of it was suspended. So he would do 15. Shelly. Shelly. Oh, she she's. Where'd she go? I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a part of, that's the point of plea bargains. Right. Well, and there was also a law change after that. So, um, you know, and they explained it very well in. Now, maybe, maybe it was supposed to be 30, but then because of the change in the law, the 15 years was counted because he didn't, I don't know if Oklahoma's like Texas, if in Texas, it's good time if you don't kill somebody. (laughs) Well, (laughs) they also get, you know, the way that the Department of Corrections calculates it is different than what his sentence looks like. And they went through Mm -hmm. that and they went through that and you know, part of that is they also claim that um, he's out on the streets telling all these people, you know, that he did it and he did it. And, but at the same token, they can't find him, supposedly. You guys hear supposedly, me? Supposedly. Yeah. We can. Yeah. Hey. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> I don't know what happened there, but the, the issue with that was there was nothing special about that sentence. When you're given a life suspended to 30, um, the 85% rule was not in effect. So basically, if you didn't get in any other trouble, you're, you were going to be let out at 50% of the time, which is what he got. 15 years, uh, they, even, they didn't let him out early. It was just his normal uh, date that he would get out. So right. all of that was nonsense. And yeah, he probably did say I'm going to do 15 years because his lawyer probably said you're going to do about 15 years on this unless you get in there and screw right. up. Mm-hmm. Right. And Shelly, let's let's talk about this. If you have a client and he's um, he and his co-defendant are facing capital murder, uh, but he wants to admit to what he's done. Are you going to let him plead guilty and testify if he's going to get life in prison? Probably not. No. Yeah. There's no point. What's the benefit? Yeah. And there has to be a benefit and there's nothing wrong with that. Unfortunately, criminals hang out with other criminals. They don't hang out with system requires this. I mean, you know, they don't hang out with nuns. (laughs) There's, there's no swans in the sewer as uh, Mm -hmm. someone says sometimes in jury selections. I mean, sometimes the witnesses are other criminals too, but it wasn't just Jordan's testimony that put him away. And I think that's the thing that's really frustrating is this wasn't a situation where one person pointed the finger at him and nothing else did. There was a plethora mm-hmm. of other evidence Correct. that pointed towards Julius Jones. Correct. Cause he had multiple people who saw him driving the suburban, mm-hmm. uh, multiple people who saw him dressed identically to that description by Megan Toby, even including having a red bandana. Right. Um, and the other the other uh, 
Oh, not to mention all that was found in his house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Chris Jordan was in his house and Chris Jordan could have planted all that stuff. But back in 99, they said, yeah, they said they were together, but they've changed their story so many right. times. It's just well, like, they didn't come okay. up with that until little John is the one who said Jordan said he planted it. Right. And that's when they came up with it. They could have come up with that before. David McKenzie could have used that. Right. Because oh, yeah. it's a fact known to Julius Jones. That's another funny aspect of post-conviction litigation. Sometimes these witnesses come out of the woodwork and it's a Brady violation, or the police are accused of a Brady violation for not providing this information to the defense when it's like, I saw the defendant throw something in the lake 10 days before the murder. Right. And it's like, well, why didn't the defendant tell his attorney that? Cause he did it. <laughs> I mean, we saw it in the, in the West Memphis three case, a witness came forward and claimed that he saw either Jason Baldwin or his mother throw a knife in the lake weeks before the murders on May 5th, 93. They alleged a Brady violation. Well, at the hearing, first of all, the kid testified or the guy testified no i didn't go to police and tell them this so no brady violation and uh in the end it was something known to baldwin why didn't he tell his attorney Mm -hmm. because either he knew he did it or his mother did it but i swear (laughs) every time you see these things and then you find out well why didn't the defendant tell his attorney it's the same thing well, in the Rodney be Reed amazed case. How many of them aren't truthful with their attorneys? I mean, that's yeah, one of the things well. that I tell my clients, like, if you're not going to tell me the truth, I can't help you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are some that are wise enough to know that if you tell me something, I can't knowingly put on false evidence. Mm-hmm. But um, so some of them keep it for that reason. But, at, you know, I never have understood. It's kind of like you can tell a lawyer and a doctor anything and they can't say anything. So why mm-hmm. don't you tell us the truth? But they don't. Right, so. right. But yeah, if, you know, they find the, they find the murder weapon, you know, in the lake behind your house, you tell your attorney, but I threw it in, you know, it wasn't the murder weapon because it was in the lake five days before the murder. Cause right. I threw it in there. That's what you tell your attorney. Y- yeah. You that think. doesn't um, hurt you, you know, <laughs> but y- you have to wait 15 years for one of your little partners in the trailer park come forward and tell your attorneys that information makes no sense so yeah defendants are are really um in post-conviction litigation sometimes the things that they come up with are are just they make their clients look really bad (laughs) in the end (laughs) so but uh and this thing and and yeah there were so many so many factors uh so many people that placed him with the gun placed him with the the suburban placed chris jordan in a different vehicle other than the suburban well and then uh jones's other car and it gets taken into the mechanic they find you know the same kind of ammunition Right. Uh, they find, you know, other robbery items like uh, a ski mask and some other things that were used in some of these other car mm-hmm. jackings. And 
you know, but they, they just conveniently forget all that. And of course they also say he had never been convicted of a violent crime at the time, which well, yeah, but he sure as hell committed some. Yeah. He committed several and he'd been convicted (laughs) of three felonies. Now, um, whether he'd been convicted of the violent ones yet, I'd have to relook at the notes, but I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, well, he was one a three-time them, convicted felon uh, when he when he was put up for trial. That was part of yeah. the continuing threat and right. evidence, and one of which was you're pushing someone in a store at Quail Springs to steal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's robbery. I don't know how you call that anything other than violent. But and he had two, uh, which I would say go to um, uh, moral turpitude or or, or honesty whatever whatever they call that mm-hmm. i can't remember at the moment he had unlawful use of a false name on oklahoma id application right and making a false declaration to a pawnbroker and concealing stolen property and then he had larceny of merchandise from a retailer that was i think the uh the footlocker and those were not when he was 15 no, they were that same year. <laughs> so um, that's the other and- part that they didn't want to talk about was, and I will tell you that I've had a conversation wherein literally supporters did not know that he had prior felonies. Mm-hmm. They didn't. Yeah. Well, how, how did they think they convicted him of felon in possession of a firearm? <laughs> oh, because he had a mean judge. <laughs> So we're just convicting people now of things that because he had been he had been in um he had been in prison for a short period of time because he hooked up with Jordan right after he got out. If I well, remember he had some been of hooked the, up with Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean they want to make you think that they just hooked up that summer, but he had been friends with Jordan. Okay. Yeah, since yeah. high school, I think they just started yeah. doing more things that last right. year Crimes. really amped up his criminal enterprise. And it was yeah. actually probably jo- Jones that led Jordan down the criminal path. Not the other way around, as Jones tries to claim. Well, Correct, Mon- because look um, at Jordan's prior record. Yeah. Yeah, Liddell so. King and some of those other people, I mean... All of those people were criminals. That's the only people he was hanging around with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. One, he was he was stealing a Chevrolet Suburban because when he stole a Lexus and a Mercedes, they couldn't sell it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's uh, Liddell King and Carmen Lottie were also relatively smart men. When the police came to talk to them, they were like, yep, <laughs> not me. It was him, and they sent him. Lottie sent them to King, and King sent them to Jones. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a good point that you just make is because people on the other side want to say, well, Jordan and King had time to corroborate their story. They 100% did not. They did mm-hmm. not. Um, King was arrested that day. Then Jordan was arrested that night, and they did not have time. They were not even with each other. Mm-hmm. They had yeah. different, you know, on their their um, interviews and things like that. So mm-hmm. that is absolutely false too, because they make it seem like 
they were hanging out right before this. And then they both just got busted at the same time. And we're like, okay, we, we planned our story before. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jones is the one who went with King. And of course he lies and says he drove King's car and King drove the suburban, but it's the other way around. But, you know, he goes with him to leave it at the convenience store. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're on video. Yeah. You know. But that yeah, was, was just, say, that was just like he had no services. idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so I think uh, at some point he says Liddell King tricked him. And, oh, I should have gone to police. Boo-hoo. Listen, let's just all remember that that all came. And then I believe the final thing was, and I think this was at the hearing, he was at home eating a birthday cookie. All right. No, his brother and sister had eaten all of his cookies. If I hear about that damn cookie, <laughs> I swear I am so sick of that damn but it's cookie. it's my favorite. You little bitch. Yeah, give up the cookie. And, the cookie was not that day. to your mama about a cookie. Hey, I'm sure he could have just what, stolen another one. Yeah, he could have. That's probably where he got it. Well, but let's also not forget that he goes out a window when police are coming to his house so he can go get him a lawyer and prove. Yeah, that. Yeah, because because they're, you know, lawyers always wait at outside windows. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I've never gotten their favorite. That's where they get their best clients. (laughs) (laughs) Outside windows. um, And um, uh, God, God bless David McKenzie. He did the best he could with what he had yeah i mean they are oh he didn't do it. i'm like what the hell else did you expect him to do he fought on everything but my god the evidence was just overwhelming mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and they just they just have selective memory on what yeah. they want to talk about yeah well I, I i'm glad that you brought this up because one of the things you know there's a few things that bother me other things just really piss me off one of the things that pisses me off is when they keep bringing up the fact that I mean I've heard a couple of different stories one I'm going to hear that he had a magnificent lawyer up until right before trial that he had a great lawyer that the Jones had hired for him and then he suddenly dies and he was stuck with David McKenzie well I would encourage these individuals listen I know it's not going to happen but I would encourage these individuals to go check the court files because the court files will show you that uh, Mr. Alberts, who was a public defender, not paid by the Jones, mm-hmm. was appointed to this case, as was David McKenzie. Mm-hmm. So the, the notion that they want to, oh, let me go back, the narrative that they want you to follow is that it was, you know, ineffective assistance of counsel because he just got stuck with Mr. McKenzie. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that makes me angry because Mr. McKenzie is a friend of mine or if that makes me angry because it's another lie. Probably both. Um, also, I want to stop and speak about the public defenders at the Oklahoma County that Julius Jones had. He had Barry Albert, who there's an award named after in criminal defense mm-hmm. sections in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Very good trial attorney. Then you had David McKenzie, who has won almost every award for criminal defense lawyers in Oklahoma that you can win. Mm-hmm. And you had Malcolm Savage, who is also an excellent trial attorney, 
all from the Oklahoma County Public Defender's Office, and I know several others that came from the Oklahoma County Public Defender's Office, um, he had very good counsel. And Mm -hmm. sometimes these people, oh, well, they were just public defenders. There's a lot of really good public defenders because people that go work as public defenders or work in criminal defense generally because that's what they love to do. Mm -hmm. Because it's certainly not because anybody's getting rich off of it. So, Mm -hmm. and public defenders are generally the only ones that have capital case experience right. or at least the vast majority. So that's another just total red herring. And it, that just really irritates me as well. Correct. And she I have, and I are on the same. Yeah. With that. I have seen, I worked with an attorney who was the criminal law clinic supervisor at Tulane law school. And so the students would work up the cases but he would be the one to go to trial and try him. Mm-hmm. And he was very dedicated and very good at what he did. And if they weren't going in the right direction, he would point them in the right direction. Uh, but he was very passionate about it, especially when it came to capital cases. And that was one of the few times that he and I had a very strong disagreement. Um. But yeah, I, I, the public defenders I've seen are very dedicated to their clients because their clients are the ones that need them the most. Right. Because they right. can't afford to pay a private attorney like Johnny Cochran or Barry <laughs> Sheck mm-hmm. or Robert Shapiro or Robert Kardashian <laughs> or Get Ashley Bailey. Effley Bailey. Listen, don't say Kardashian. That's a touchy subject for us. Well, no, we don't understand. We, I, I personally we don't understand where that, she went wrong. Yeah, <laughs> right? I, I don't understand where she went wrong. Um, I personally think that she's had so many injections in her ass that her brain is rotted. Uh, and we're talking about Kim Kardashian because it seems like the other sisters are pretty mom on these kind of topics. So, yeah, I, I think Kim's um, brain has rotted, although she did finally pass the baby bar on her fourth try. Bar, but it insults me as a lawyer to think you're not going to go to college and law school and just keep taking the bar exam. But, Shelly, that's because she's in California and, you know, they're special. I know they're special and she's rich. <laughs> so that means she thinks she needs to practice law. So, right. But anyway. so. Um, just to follow up on what I was saying, the last time that um, Mr. Albert represented was at a hearing uh, on behalf of Julius Jones was August 11th of 2000. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, He did not go to trial for a very long time after that, wherein if the Jones side wanted to hire a new attorney because supposedly they had hired Barry Albert, which we all know is not true. Right. um, They had plenty of time to do that. So their notion that, you know, right up until trial, he was greatly. No, he was losing left and right. Now, same thing. When did he pass away? I believe it was in October of 2000. Okay. So, yeah, there was yeah. a long time. And if there was really an issue with Mackenzie or Savage or McPhail, there was two years that there was Julius plenty Jones of time. could have asked right. for someone else. Correct. Correct. Yes. Correct. That usually so. is um, another thing. I looked at the docket. Uh, they filed a lot, a lot, a lot of motions. Mm-hmm. 
and they filed right. some really good capital motions. Yes, mm-hmm. they they yep. did file a lot. They had a three day, which I don't think we ever got into in our podcast, but they challenged the search warrant of the house trying to get mm-hmm. the evidence kicked. They had like a three day long suppression hearing. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like they were just sitting on their hands, not doing anything. Right, right. And they, yeah, they tried. They argued that the nighttime, that it was nighttime search not authorized. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there was the issue with the Franks hearing. That they didn't, they asked for a Franks hearing, but they didn't push for it, I believe. Yes, and we didn't get into that. There was a reason on that as well. I think it was kind of told it was going to be denied. I don't quote me on that though, but there was, there was something else to that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I, the, in the uh, direct appeal, they said it would have been futile based, well, I guess, based on the evidence at the, at the suppression hearing. Right. So, um, but yeah, he, they did, uh, and then they tried to allege later that McPhail wasn't experienced experienced enough. But they never bring that back up. <laughs> now, Miss McPhail is still at the public defender's office, and I believe does capital work. Um, this was she was um, a very new lawyer, uh, but they never bring that doesn't fit their narrative because she Mm -hmm. goes along with their story. So they don't really throw her under the bus very much. They focus on David McKenzie. Right. Uh, But that's another thing that frustrates me. Right. (laughs) And and they act as, but when they did bring it up, they acted as though she was the only attorney. Right. (laughs) Even though he had McKenzie and Savage, which while they didn't have capital experience, uh, perhaps, you know, Mr. McKenzie had no capital experience because the cases he tried weren't capital cases or he was able to get a defense verdict in the first stage and didn't have to go right to the second stage. Yeah, he had plenty of murder experience and, and Malcolm had murder experience and, you know, it's just, if anyone bothered to read the record before they spoke from their side, it would be a refreshing change no it's not gonna i think it just goes to show i mean what they were trying this whole time again they didn't want to look at the facts they didn't want to look at the truth they only wanted to cherry pick thank you amanda bass things that fit their narrative and things that could possibly get them another tally mark for the victims or the um Mm -hmm. uh innocence project yeah and the majority of those had been roundly rejected by the courts Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm so. I mean, we do we need to talk about the whole DNA evidence and how the, <laughs> the, the state had to fight to get those results? Yes, I mean, let's, let's go there. Let's, let's go there because that. that is, yes, because that is one of the biggest, I think, uh, distortions of last defense is that the DNA evidence was somehow uh, inferior or immaterial because um i I believe at the hearing they argued that julius jones's dna is a result of transfer because it was in his bed transfer from your face to your closet um but well there's no saliva it's negative for saliva well that could be because so many years it broke down and and 
I want to address there's a complaint that they didn't do that DNA testing in 1999. But in 1999, there was no epithelial testing. And you needed more material mm-hmm. in order to be able to test for DNA. So, and I think what they got on the bandana is more epithelial, probably, because the saliva is broken down and they only got a partial profile. And it's a mixture, which is probably contamination from people in the lab over the years or investigators in 1999 who had no idea that they were handling something that 20 years later could be tested. Right. But even at that, it wasn't pointing, it wasn't exonerating evidence like they thought it was going to be. No, exactly. And Um, that's the biggest thing for me, because if you look at all the other cases, which I know that all three of us have, that the Innocence Fraud, I apologize, their official name is Innocence Project, but it is not only, it's not known to that by me. Um, They all go off of this, you know, exonerating DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think this case really took a turn was they were banking on it. They were banking on it because, you know, Julius Jones had said so. Right. And then it didn't come back and they're like, "Oh, oh, crap. Now what? I mean, this is our narrative. So now now we have to make it not mean anything. And so their way of doing Mm -hmm. that is a saying, well, there's no saliva. Mm -hmm. So, but by the way, we want you guys to uphold it in all of our other cases. We use it. Well, I'm hoping that this, this tactic (laughs) comes back to bite them on the ass, especially in an old case where DAs employ these same arguments to counter exonerating DNA or, or DNA from someone else. Um, but it's funny because some of the arguments that they're using about to discredit Jones's DNA really could be used to say, well, then Christopher Jordan's DNA not being there is, is pretty significant. There's no saliva. Well, how was Christopher Jordan going to wear the bandana without leaving behind saliva? No, what you just said is huge. That is, yeah. that is huge, but they don't want to look at that. Christopher so. Jordan was nowhere on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was excluded. Yes. If anyone was exonerated, it's him. <laughs> it was Christopher Jordan, right? <laughs> he, he was excluded as a major or a minor contributor. <laughs> um, and How that keeps being a sticking point for them just, just blows my mind. Well, because their client couldn't be excluded as a major contributor in seven out of 10 loci, which statistically you would have to pick 110 million African-American men out to get the same DNA profile as that from Julius Jones. Right, but Mm -hmm. that didn't mean anything. No, that's right. No, immaterial. It's just (laughs) like Rodney Reed's DNA being on a murder victim is is, uh, because he had a secret affair with her that Nobody knew about. Nobody told anybody about. And conveniently, you didn't tell anybody until after you're accused of murder. Yeah. Well, no, he he didn't tell anybody until he found out his DNA was there. <laughs> and he used that same thing like <laughs> ten years before. Uh, he was arrested. They were taking his blood. 
he said, oh, well, we had we had a secret relationship because she's white and I'm black and we have to keep it secret, um, which doesn't make a bit of sense because he openly dated other white women and even had children with them. <laughs> so that makes because you're not keeping your relationship with them very secret. If you're getting them pregnant and they're having your babies. So. <laughs> But uh, another argument they make is that um, the uh, test results are insufficient for CODIS. Okay, Um, again, I went off on this one day in one of mine. And this irritates the heck out of me. Go, Shell, go. Go. I mean, CODIS is if you don't know who it is. You put a DNA match to see if it matches to a convicted felon or someone who's in the database for whatever reason. Could be lawyers, could be police, could be, you know, military, anybody that's in this database. That's when you don't have any idea Uh whose DNA this is. You put it in to try to match. That is not what this is. We had two people. We were, did it match or did it not match? Didn't have anything to do with CODIS. Doesn't have to Mm -hmm. match the CODIS regulations. I mean, Again, that's just another straw man argument. Yeah. In fact, there is no, um, there is no reason to put it into CODIS. Correct. Because they had a reference sample from the two parties that they were trying to determine which one might have worn the bandana. Yes. And they found out. And then the other thing that they argue is uh, that the Bode report doesn't meet the FBI's QAS standards, which have nothing to do with caseworker reporting. Or interpretation of data. QES is what kind of training your lab people have, what kind of uh, proficiency on equipment they have, those kind of things, setting up your lab to make it compliant. Right. Or probably like other DNA. Labs, no. You know. It has nothing to do with the casework or reporting data and interpretation of data so but once again the general public believes oh no his dna is not on that bandana because they didn't test it right right because they're all qualified to test bandanas (laughs) no they're all they're they're all they all think they're qualified to interpret dna results yeah, which they're not I mean, come on but we have a lot of people who think they're scientists nowadays so you this know yeah because they watch csi <laughs> uh-huh no these are the people that think that if you speak a lie long enough it becomes a truth that's yeah. all they're going on yeah yeah so all right well i think we have about covered it thank you so much for joining me ladies you are welcome this was enjoyable and uh rather than plow new ground y'all can keep that case note those case notes though and if you need to use them feel free perfect Um, are we still gonna go next sunday yes ma'am we are slice the sucker right open smack that oklahoma pardon and parole board upside the head (laughs) (laughs) i'm here for it and when will this air and the one next week air so i can make sure and listen i will post this on twitter and facebook later today um and so probably sometime this evening okay okay. because i'm recording i'm i'm not i'm not ready to do live yet Mm -hmm. i have to figure out how to do it and i'm just figuring out recording right now so 
I yeah, will. It's, um, it's not as simple as it looks. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> to do all this. <laughs> so, but I will, I'm I will message, uh, I will uh, post a link and I'll send a link to you guys on Facebook so that y'all can share it. And okay. I mean, on Twitter, uh, okay. Shelly, you're on Facebook and I think I liked your page. Okay. Yeah, no, I'll share it. I'll share it on both once I see it. Yeah. I'll go find you Lisa when we get off on Facebook and uh, send you a request. You can find mine. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me, ladies. You are so welcome. A great rest of your Sunday. All right. All right. Hey, uh, Lisa, I will shoot you an email later tonight on some of the other stuff I have on the PPB. Perfect. Yeah. Cause I've got, that'll be my work on on Sunday on next Saturday rather. Perfect. And I will get the rest of that together tonight. I've got a depot early in the morning that I got to prep some for too. But uh, I, after that, home, I know the feeling. Other than being a, in McAllister, I have a weekly meeting with my boss oh, fun. every Monday morning. But fun. luckily, he Those at least best. lets me get my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. All right, ladies. All right. Well, I'll talk to you girls later. Thank Bye. you. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. Thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien. If you like the show and want to know more, you can find me on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Amy and I will be back on Sunday, January 30th, 2022, to talk about the troubled Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board. Before the controversial decision to break their own rules to consider Jones's request for commutation and clemency, the board was the target of a criminal investigation into their processes after questions were raised about why Lawrence Anderson was recommended for release. Shortly after his release, Anderson committed a grisly triple murder. In what is likely to be a developing situation, Amy and I will talk about the rules governing the board the irregularities in the board's consideration of Jones's applications and others, and the resignation of Adam Luck and Governor Stitt's replacement appointee. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. It's good to be back and good night. Thank you.